Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, I'm so glad you're here today. I um I have a, a opportunities at different times to talk to people that I respect in different areas. And today I'm talking to a colleague of mine that I have great respect for, in particular in her work with uh, partner betrayal, broken relationships, how partners who've been cheated on or experienced infidelity or at the other end of sex addiction, how do they find their way to healing within themselves and then to come to some peace with that partner, whether they stay with them or not. And this fabulous friend of mine is named Michelle Mays. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Rob. And Michelle is a therapist. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about her. Michelle received her master's in counseling in 2001 in Seattle, Washington, and practiced there with sexual addiction um, in Seattle. Then she moved to Virginia and opened a practice in Leesburg. Right now, Michelle is the founder and executive director of the Center for Relational Recovery, a counseling and training center focused on providing leading edge treatment to sex addicts, to partners of sex addicts, trauma survivors, and those struggling with relationship issues. And I know that Michelle is going to tell you all about what she's doing at the Center for Relational Recovery once we get going. So Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to join you today. Well, we had lunch together not so long ago, and I was listening to some of the things you were talking about related to partners, and I thought, wow, I think that there's some things here that could really help people that Michelle has to say. And let me just maybe start with something simple, like, was there a point at what you realized that the trauma of betrayal, of emotional betrayal by a partner, a lover, when a lover lets you down and cheats on you, was there a point at which you realized in your work that that was a kind of a different kind of wound for someone than, let's say, if their mom died or they lost a job or or they had some other kind of grief-related trauma? You know, honestly, I would have to say yes is the answer to that question, but I would actually say that it happened for me prior to my work. I came into the field getting my counseling degree uh, at the same time that I was also in a relationship with someone who is a sex addict. So I had had my own journey dealing with that, and what I had found as I had tried to find help and I had tried to get you know, support and people who understood what I was dealing with, that most people really did not understand it. You know, Michelle, this is a great place for me to ask you this question I want to ask, which is what were the kind of not useful responses you got that you now realize were not at all helpful, or even then you didn't feel like they were helpful? What kinds of things do you hear from therapists? Oh my goodness. I mean, how long? Just start a list. Anytime. (laughs) How long do you have? All right. Well, 
I, I mean, I think for starters, people didn't understand that sex addiction even existed. So this was back a while ago. This was, you know, probably 15 plus years, 20 years, even if I think back to the beginning of my relationship. I knew you could have called me. I would have told you. Yeah, well, <laughs> in, my, in my world, nobody really understood that. What you're saying, and I think it's important, I want everybody to hear is that by going to, uh, and I'm guessing you tried to find a good therapist, you tried to find support, mm-hmm. you tried to find information, and you just didn't find it. I did not find it. I found people who really didn't uh, understand the compulsivity piece. I think they thought that my my fear, my anger, my pain, my confusion was an overreaction to things. I think there was the thought that we actually needed like couples therapy rather than addiction treatment. There's that kind of zone that people tried. Can I say something about that? Because what that implies, I think, is that he went out, and I'm, I'm going to make this up because we don't need to talk about your personal relationship, but that's like saying to a spouse, oh yeah, you know, if your marriage were working better, he wouldn't have slept with a hundred prostitutes or he wouldn't have looked at porn nine hours a day. Um, I don't think there's anything in a relationship that causes someone to say, oh, I'm going to go out and cheat. <laughs> they can do a whole bunch of other things if they're not happy with the relationship other than that. And, uh, and what I hear you saying is it, it feels like you're getting blamed when you're told, oh, well, couples counseling is the answer. Getting blamed or getting like patched up with something that's highly ineffective. You know, basically, I think that people that I was working with sort of wanted, we were young. I think we were a young couple and they looked at us and thought, oh, we want this to work for you. And so let's see if we can kind of put a bandaid on it and get you back on your feet when there were really serious issues at play in the relationship that they really did not understand. And so I think. I think there was that whole angle going on. And and then I think also at the time in the field, there was some pathologizing of the partner, you know, based on the old, old codependence model and all of that kind of thing. Can you use like regular language for that? Like, so what does pathologizing the partner mean in everyday terms? I think that when someone came in, so let me speak for me, from my story. So when I had confusion and pain and anger and distress, over the behaviors that were happening in my relationship and the accompanying being lied to and deceived chronically. When all of that was going on, when I came into counseling, I was seen as equally the problem and my, that my reaction to what was happening were problematic reactions. When what we know now today is those are actually really normal reactions to experiencing betrayal healthy. I mean, if someone you love, if the person you absolutely think is going to have your back, the one who would never let you down, the one you believe in the most, once you find out that person is not that person and they've got a whole secret life going on, it's going to rock your world. And it sounds like they didn't want that to rock your world so much and they didn't want to really look at the problem so seriously. And, you know, I hear this a lot from partners that Sometimes you're left feeling like, oh, if I had more sex with him, or if I were thinner, or if I were younger, or if I were whatever, if you were whatever, that this wouldn't be happening. And somehow there's an implication that it's your responsibility. And that's the worst. I think that is particularly true if you're female. There's sort of this idea that if your partner cheats on you, it is actually your fault if you're female. In some way, you've Mm -hmm. done something. Or not done something. Right, exactly. By omission or commission, you are you are somehow mm-hmm. to blame for what's happening. And so I think that causes partners to internalize they already have the deck stacked against them. And there's an enormous amount of shame. 
Well, it's interesting because, I mean, it's not interesting, it's painfully sad to me, but you know, you and I have grown up in this field together in, in, in terms of watching it evolve around these issues. And yeah, the model for working with addicts, what, partners of addicts was they're enabling, they're rescuing, they're, they have a big part in the addiction and that, that kind of comes out of the history of codependency. Whereas as you know, I, I wrote a book called Pro-Dependence and I have a, a very different view on partners. I think they love and love and love and then they get betrayed and then they're devastated and then everyone looks at them and says, what's wrong with you? <laughs> as if, you know, when your whole life is turned upside down, you're not allowed to fall apart. So even early on, Michelle, like you knew that the models that were being used for this population didn't work. You knew it personally and it sounds like you felt it professionally. And, and why do you think, how do you think we got there with the wrong models? I mean, how did this happen? You know, I have a theory about this and it's just my own personal theory, but it has to do with you know, the fact that clinicians are humans too. And so here's how I think about it. I think that when partners come in, when betrayed partners come in and they are reeling from betrayal, you know, we talk about that in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a diagnostic category that we sometimes use now, today. We didn't use it before. But the thing about that is we're using the word post as though the trauma has ended though the trauma has actually completed. And yet when you have a partner coming into your office, there is no post for them. They are usually mid-trauma. You mean it's something like, so I just found out my husband's lying to me and he's been sleeping with all these people and he's still doing it and he tells me he's not, but I know he is because I have the receipts or the proof and we have three kids. And that's not post-trauma. That's the truck just hit me and I don't know what the license plate looks like. Yes. It's mid-trauma. You are in the middle of an unfolding trauma. And I often it looks more like this, like they come in and they say, hey, my husband had an affair and I'm reeling from this affair. And by the time you've worked with them for three months, what's actually their new reality three months later is my husband had several affairs. And by the way, he sees dozens of prostitutes. And by the way, also has a compulsive porn addiction. Right, right. Our guys know all of this. And over that three months, they have had that experience of that trauma unfolding. So what I think happened in the field, some is that when somebody is in the middle of a trauma that is unfolding, it is experienced very, very viscerally. I mean, they are in the middle of their trauma response. They are in the middle of pain and agony and confusion. Betrayal. Oh, massive betrayal. And we as therapists, we are like everybody else in the world. We have monkey brain, which means that, you know, there's those research studies of one monkey eating a banana and his brain lights up a certain way. And the monkey that's watching, his brain lights up the same way, even though he's not eating the banana. Mm-hmm. We have the ability to have our nervous systems affected by our clients' nervous systems. And I think that what happened early on in the field is that these partners came in and they were really activated and really traumatized. And the therapist felt that in a visceral way that feels different when you're working with somebody who is dealing with trauma who, that has ended and is in the past. That's a different experience. You're absolutely right, I think, Michelle. I mean, I think there's many, many pieces to this, which is, you know, for one thing, if you're a woman, for example, who just found out that your husband has been doing X, Y, Z and you didn't know about it, if you go to make an appointment with a therapist and you go see them three days later, just having found out that he's been with prostitutes looking at all this stuff, you're not going to be the same woman presenting to that therapist that you would have been a week before or a month before. So we are seeing people at their greatest moment of crisis and fear. And I think a lot of times therapists think, oh, well, this person's kind of crazy, not realizing that this person wasn't acting this way a week a week ago or two weeks ago. Right. Or three. The level of dysregulation is so high. 
And I think what we don't account for is that that's dysregulating for us as clinicians. So I have stood on a stage, I will say, and I've actually heard a couple of people say this and validate your experience, which is like, it sounds very simply like this. Nobody likes angry people sitting in front of them yelling. And when you're a therapist, even if you are inviting people to share what, you know, sometimes a spouse will come in and motherfucker and he ruined my life and I want to kill everybody. And that's hard for us to take. We're people too, I think is what you're saying. So there's kind of a feeling of like, I want to tamp down some of that. Like, I don't want to tolerate all that rage and hurt. And it's just overwhelming for the therapist. Right. And so it's easier to just try to calm them down rather than validating you have every right to feel this way. I think that, is that what you're saying? Well, I think what I'm saying is that I think in order to get distance from this phenomenon, that what happened is partners were pathologized. Mm-hmm. Partners were told this reaction is, is a wrong, something is wrong with this reaction. Right. It's too strong. It's too big. It's right. And I think the field had that. I think the whole field had that experience. Well, remember it, all of this comes out of the addiction, drug and alcohol addiction field. And we were following a codependency model, which said, you have to look at the spouse and their part. And that's not, that didn't work for us in our field. And you've watched that change. And, you know, I'm working to have that change in a larger way in the drug and alcohol community with pro-dependence. But I think there's another piece of that too, which is that, you know, and, and I, we need to talk about this, but I, I want to bring it up with you. It's just, it's just remorse. You know, I remember, I don't know, I'm sure we've all had experiences where we've had major losses. You know, uh, we're of an age, probably if you're listening now, you've lost a parent, you've lost a friend, you lost a dog, you've lost someone. And one of the key experiences about loss, major loss, is it comes with remorse. You know, like when your parent dies, your uncle dies, your grandma dies, you know, everyone on the planet, no matter how, who their grandmother was, thinks, oh, I wish I'd said this, or I wish we'd had that moment. So people come into grief counseling and grief counselors already know that they're blaming themselves, that they're wishing that we'd had this talk or we're wishing we'd resolve that issue or because remorse is a universal issue that comes up with grief. So my experience, I want to sort of build on what you're saying is that you know, we have partners are coming in saying, God, I don't know what's, you know, I, I, I wish I'd done it differently. I wish I, maybe I should have done this. Maybe I shouldn't have done that because they're in grief and grief automatically implies that you're going to doubt yourself and have some remorse. And rather than saying to a partner, you know, there's not anything on earth you could do to actually make someone go out and see a prostitute. That's their own decision. We've kind of joined with that partner's remorse and said, well, this does belong to you. And that's just so mean, ultimately unfair to say to a partner. Yeah. And I think it, there is uh, actually a level of cruelty in it in terms of when somebody is in a dire situation and in a high level of distress, rather than offering some kind of stability or some kind of comfort or some kind of pathway out of stress, you're actually doubling down on their distress by blaming them. Well, it's kind of like, it gives you a sense of control. Like I can control the situation because I can pathologize this person. I can put the label on them and I can kind of control what they're, yeah, that's just the wrong way to go. So let me ask you this, Michelle, because you don't do this work like this. What have you, what do you do, do differently? What is it, what would a partner's be experienced, someone like you walking into your own office now, you know, 16, 18 years later, what would they experience that would be different than that? Well, so the way that we treat betrayal trauma is we think of it in, in terms of complex betrayal trauma and uh, I have a model that I've developed for working with that that really looks at, I think for most people who have experienced betrayal trauma, whether it is as a result of being in a relationship with a sex addict or uh, being in a relationship with somebody who is has been unfaithful or has cheated in some way. So regardless of what it is or where it's originating, each person usually is dealing with three different types of trauma that 
come together and interweave with one another and then exacerbate each other. So in the model that we use, we look at attachment trauma and we look at emotional and psychological trauma and sexual trauma. Can you talk about all of those a little bit, like, you know, just a little bit for each? Absolutely. So when we're looking at attachment trauma, we're really looking at the way in which your attachment system, so the part of you that is bonded to your partner and that is relating to your partner has been impacted by the betrayal. So how the healthy bond has been uh, uh, harmed. Absolutely. So when people pair up long term in long-term relationships, they actually become one biological unit. So your partner actually regulates your heart rate, level of hormones in your blood, your breathing, your blood pressure. I mean, you actually truly become an organism together. I love that, by the way. And that's a good thing, right? That's a, we want that. That's a wonderful thing. That's what we all, that's what we're all looking for and what we all yes. see. Yeah. And when things are going well, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. When things are not going well, it is incredibly debilitating because you are in a relationship with somebody who you are now bonded with, but they are, they are making you feel danger rather than safe. They're dysregulating you. They're upsetting your apple cart rather than stabilizing it. Yeah. Instead of you feeling safe when you come toward them, you feel scared when you come toward them. And this, by the way, being probably one of the most important people in your life. Yeah. They, yes. This is your primary bond. Right, right. This is your primary person who is your safe base. And what we know about people who are like our partners actually create a launching pad for us to go out into the rest of life. It's so true. So the more safe we feel with our partner, the more we're able to take risks and go out and kind of do our thing. It's very true. Life. And when that is compromised by betrayal, it affects all of life. It doesn't just affect our relationship, it affects our entire sense of ourselves in the world with other people. And we doubt ourselves. Tremendously. We, we sort of want to curl in on ourselves because we feel like something is wrong. So that's the attachment trauma. Talk about the other pieces, because this is great stuff, Michelle, really helpful for everybody, I think. So that's attachment trauma. Then emotional and psychological trauma has to do with the effects of being chronically lied to and having your reality manipulated by the person who's cheating on you. Oh, we have a word for this. Uh, we call it uh, uh, gaslighting. Gaslighting. That's a word for that. Yeah. So this is the this is the gaslighting, and I don't know if everybody knows where that term comes from. It's from an old movie back in the back in the black and white thirties, I think. Pre pre second. Yeah, you need a gay man for this, Michelle. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, it was uh, it was um, it was a Hitchcock movie in the before World War II, and Gaslight was a movie about a man who married a woman ultimately to steal from her, and the way that he decided to get her ever all of her stuff from her was to drive her insane. And so, whenever she would see some reality, he would he would make her doubt herself, or he would create situations, and then he would say, "I don't see that," or "What are you talking about?" So he would constantly leaving her, doubting herself, questioning herself. And we call that gaslighting someone. So if you say, I'm going to be home by six, and then you don't come home till eight. And then I say to you, hey, I thought you were coming home at six. And you say to me, I never said that. That's gaslighting. Right. And what we talk about in treatment like, is that there's really four types of it. Oh, my God. Yeah. It gets worse. Yeah. There's more. Yeah, so you want to break that one down? <laughs> Wait, I want to get the three forms of trauma. So we got we got attachment. We got we're in the middle of psychological and emotional. We're psychological and emotional, which is the effects of being lied to and having your reality manipulated. So it's the effects of lo- of the gaslighting on you and what it is like when you are separated from your ability to perceive reality, because that's really what happens. Is that when you 
are looking and seeing things that are happening and you're being told they are not happening, you start to doubt your five senses, which is how we all take in information. And you start to doubt your ability to perceive your reality accurately. And this is sort of the foundation of mental illness. And <laughs> is to not see reality clearly, to be doubting your own reality, to be questioning what you're seeing. Yeah, that's that's not a good thing. Yeah, so you are truly being driven crazy. Right. You know, they're really this is why we call it psychological and emotional abuse. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. And I want to say from the addict's perspective or from the cheater's perspective, what they're trying to do, because I think it's important to understand. I don't believe having worked with cheating men for the most part, but less, quite a few cheating women over the last 25 years, I, I don't think that the intention of most of the men I've worked with who are cheating is to drive their partner crazy and hurt them. I think they're not thinking about their partner at all. What the person who's cheating is thinking is, how can I get away with this? Oh, they're close. They might catch me. Oh, I better lie about this. Oh, 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 the, oh they might catch that. So they're not thinking at all about the effect of their lies on their partner or the effect of that partner's reality being denied over and over again. They're just thinking about, oh, I got away with it this time. Oh, I got away with it again. And they're just going to do whatever they can to cover their tracks, not seeing the psychological and emotional damage that's causing the person they say they love. Right. I think most addicts and most cheaters are caught in a dilemma because they have competing attachments. Mm. They are attached to their partner. And they're also attached to either their addiction or their affair partner. Mm -hmm. They are lying in order to manage these competing attachments. Right. I have my cake and eat it too. Yes. So that you partner don't find out about this over here. And what's the third the third kind of trauma? You think people who experience betrayal, who've been cheated on, what what is that one? So that is sexual trauma. And I think that ranges across the board for people. I think if you've been cheated on and if the relationship agreements have been violated in the arena of sexuality, most people have some level of sexual trauma in the sense that their sense of who they are sexually has been impacted by, by the cheating. You mean, so let me get this right. So if I've been cheated on, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not attractive. I'm not desirable. There's something wrong with me like that. Or is it more like every time I get in bed with him or her, I think about them being with someone else and I just shut down or probably all of it. Yes, all of it. And I would say it's on a continuum of severity. So for some people, it's it's those kinds of concerns, you know, Am I sexy enough? Am I desirable? Am mm. I wanted? How do I compete with this? Mm-hmm. It's um, how do I get these images out of my brain so that I can ever enjoy my sexuality with my partner again? Mm-hmm. All the way to my health has been put at risk. Yes. And what does that mean for me sexually in terms of how I engage sexually from now on? All the way to you know people who have experienced sexual coercion and sexual abuse within their relationship. Which happens, I have to say, all the time. It happens really, really heartbreakingly frequently. 
I, I, if you don't mind, I, I want to bring up a short story. Um, I worked with a woman in a, a treatment center who was trying to recover from alcoholism, Michelle. And she told me she was on her third treatment and a lovely little old lady in her 60s and good Christian woman and had grandkids. And, you know, she was on her third alcoholism treatment, couldn't quite figure out why she couldn't stay sober. And because I'm kind of the sex guy and I ask about sex and relationships and intimacy and I happen to be in her group, I said, you know, I said to her something that no one else had said because she was a nice older Christian grandma who ever, no one would ask her, you know, about sex. I said to her, what is your sex life like? I just said that to her, which is, I think, a useful question to ask a 62-year-old, but no one, no one had asked that because you don't ask that nice little alcoholic grandmother questions like that. And what she said to me was she said, it's interesting that you asked that because I'm beginning to wonder if the fact that my husband makes me look at porn th- two or three days a week and then makes me have sex with him has anything to do with my drinking. Mm. And the poor lady, you know, she felt that as a, as a good partner, as a, you know, religious, spiritual person doing her job, so to speak, that she had to go along with that. Mm-hmm. And because no one talks about these issues oftentimes in treatment, no one had ever asked her about it. And I bet you, do you think that woman is drinking over that? You bet. So I really appreciate your bringing up sexual coercion in marriages and relationships because we don't talk enough about that. It is a huge component for so many people. And I can't tell you the number of people who I have had come in and say, this started to happen in my relationship. And then I started to have a glass or two of wine whenever I right. need Exactly. So it, it's such a tell in terms of if you can't bear to be sexual with your partner sober, something is really wrong. Or if you can't bear to be sexual with your partner, something is wrong. And, and the thing is, you have to trust that because I think a lot of partners will say, well, there's something wrong with me. And I think in particular with women and sexuality, your sexuality is very finely, like, uh, you know, men, we can be opportunistic. We don't have to necessarily care about someone. We can go to a strip club and get turned on. You know, that's kind of how men work. Women, especially healthy women, not so much. You guys want some kind of emotional connection to your sexuality and you want to feel safe emotionally, not just turned on. And I can only imagine what, well, let me ask you, how long do you think in a healthy way it takes if, a, if the person who's been cheating, acting out, all that is really doing what they need to do? You know, they, they're suiting up, they're showing up, they're working on themselves in whatever way, they've stopped the acting out, they're trying to be a good spouse. How long do you think it takes for someone who's been cheated on to really begin to feel like, okay, I'm myself again in this relationship? Because I say at least a year, but that's me. I'm myself in this relationship, not just sexually, but overall. I think at least a year. And how long do you think the person who's been cheating or sexual acting, how long do you think they would like it to be before their partner forgives them? (laughs) Uh, Today would be really good. (laughs) Three weeks, right? (laughs) Yeah. So this is part of what Michelle and I deal with. I just want you guys to know you can feel sorry for us as therapists, is that we're dealing with partners often who, who have every reason to be so angry for so long. And they are looking, you know, I don't know if you believe this, Michelle, but I'd like to toss this to you. I think that when partners are doing what we call detective work, so partners who are cheated on will often go through cell phone bills, uh, check bank records, go through browser histories, you know, that kind of thing to try to figure out, you know, phone records, what has been going on in my relationship? And they don't usually stop at the first set of bills. <laughs> they usually go back, you know, years. They're try- they like they are some of the best detectives I've ever met. And by the way, I've long ago learned not to tell partners to stop doing detective work because they're not going to listen to me. So I just tell them, you know, be careful what you find may hurt you more than you expect, but I know you're going to do it. 
But the thing I wanted to ask you about is something I've always sort of mused about, which is I think that partners who do that are not trying to actually find, catch their person in a lie. I think they're trying to re-find their way to trust. In other words, I'm going to do detective work because I want to prove to myself that I'm going to find that other thing that's there. But but really what I'm saying is I'm going to keep looking in the hopes that I don't find anything else there, in the hopes that I can start to put this down. Because it seems to me if if you want to leave somebody, you leave them. You don't start going through their stuff to see what's been going on. If you're going through their stuff to see what's going on, maybe you're looking for a reason to stay. So I'd love your opinion on that or your feedback about that. Well, I do think that a lot of times when people are doing that kind of sleuthing, they are trying to stay in the relationship. But in order to stay in the relationship, they have to they have to understand what has happened. Yes. They have to have the full scope and depth of the betrayal so that they can start to contain it. Because without all of that, when you're still dealing with all the shadowy threat of all the secrets and lies, you feel like there's no end to what you might discover. It's a very uncontained experience. And so I think a lot of times what they're trying to do is actually get some edges, you know, find the edges of the betrayal. And have some control over what's happened. Like if I could just get a full sense over everything, then I'll, you know, it's funny, I I will say, Michelle, that I do know when partners do detective work that they're always hoping like, well, when I find the answer to this question, or when I find out that piece, then I'm going to feel better. And I've always inevitably found that when they find this piece or find out the answer to that question, they actually feel worse. And I tell them that I'm like, you know, it's actually going to have to take the person who cheated on you to sit down and tell you everything. You're finding bits and pieces is going to hurt you more, but I know that you need to do it and I respect your need to do it. The other thing that I talk with folks about, because I see this happen, is I think after you first find out about betrayal, there's a there's a period of time where most people do a lot of sleuthing and a lot of like detective work. You know, they make Sherlock Holmes look like an amateur, and then there's a time where you do start to get the edges in place. Like hopefully you start to get an idea of what's happening. And I see some partners continue to go looking for more information. Mm -hmm. And what I notice is when they're doing that, they go looking in order to avoid feeling the feelings about what they actually do know. Oh, so it's kind of like sitting on the edge of anxiety rather than falling into despair. Correct. So it's like, I'm just going to stay in the anxiety of what might I, what else might there There, be? There must be more, there must be more, there must be more. Mm -hmm. Because that way I can avoid the massive pain and loss and grief over what my partner did. You know, it's really cool that you said that, Michelle, because I'm thinking, of course, detective work or sleuthing, as you call it, is is kind of like a way of trying to find, it is a way of trying to have control over an out of control situation. And once, you know, once the partner stops that, you know, because it doesn't matter whether they find three more pieces or no more pieces, they're going to have to run into that brick wall of pain. And you're right, it may keep them a little while longer out of that pain where do you see the the greatest healing with these couples, Michelle? Because I know, I don't know if this is true for you, but in my practice over the years, despite all the things that we've just said over the last 30 minutes, I would say at least 75% of the couples I work with stay together, maybe 80. And so it seems like these folks, despite all this pain and hurt, they end up choosing to stay with each other. Is is that your experience or, or how do you see that? It is my experience. And I think- Weird, right? Isn't that so weird? I'm so glad you said that. I don't think, I don't, you know, the more I look at the research on attachment, the less weird it seems to me because mm. I just think our attachment systems are amazing in terms of how we bond with our partner mm-hmm. and then what we will do to fight to preserve that bond. 
and biological. I would say a lot, there's a good biological component of that. Completely. And most people want to try to save their relationship. And it's, I write about this um, in my um, blogging on Partner Hope, the website that I have for partners, because so many people feel shame about staying. So many betrayed partners feel shame that they are staying. And I write about like our cultural story is, you know, somebody cheats on you and you wrap yourself up in your cloak of dignity and you stalk out of the relationship and say never. And yet that is not the actual reality of what people are doing. No. And, and in fact, I will say that many a therapist I've had to counsel because they have an angry spouse who's been cheated on coming in and their thought is, oh, well, that person wants to leave. And that's not often, for most of the time, not at all where that person is at. Even if they're saying they want to leave, they're often right, really right, wanting right, right, to right. leave. They're, they're sort of trying on this, can I stay? Do I have to leave? And they're also dealing with the shame of, if I stay, it means I'm weak. If I stay, it means I have no dignity. I'm letting him walk all over me. I think about this partner who I worked with years ago, and she, she had like just... I mean, raked her partner over the coals, gave him the worst tongue. I mean, they were like both reeling for days from the diatribe tribe that she had made against him. And I said to her, I said, what do you think this behavior is about that you keep doing this? Like what happens to you? And she said, you know what it is? I don't feel, I feel like I have to. I feel like I don't, if I don't do this, then I'm a fool for having stayed and I'll have just let him walk all over me. And so I have to like make him pay to show that I'm like not letting him just take advantage of me. And so I think that that message of there's weakness in staying. Well, he needs to know that he can't do this to me like that again. I mean, he needs to really get that. And and I'm going to make him get it <laughs> or her get it. get it. And I'm going to feel like I have dignity. Hey, Michelle, I, I have to say, I love talking to you. Like, this is the greatest stuff ever, especially for the people that were, who are listening. Tell me here how they can find you, how they can learn about Partner Hope, um, some of the stuff that you're doing so that if people want to connect with you, they can. So I have a website called at partnerhope.com, and that is a website for betrayed partners. And right now I blog there every week so you can sign up and get a blog. And then there are a couple free resources on there that you could also download. And eventually that's going to be a full resource site for partners, betrayed partners. It takes them through a six phase process of healing. So folks can find me there. They can also find me at the Center for Relational Recovery. That's the counseling center that I am the founder of. And then I'm clinical director there. And we have an outpatient treatment program for sex addiction and betrayal trauma. And you're working with addicts too, right, Michelle? Absolutely. Yep. We have a treatment program that what we're known for is treating all three entities simultaneously. We treat the addict, the partner, and the relationship all at one time. The reason I want to ask that is because I want I wanted to say to those addicts who might be listening, or even those partners who might feel, oh, we're just we're not just we're not supportive of the other half of the equation. You know, we, we're we're talking about betrayal, and that means we're talking about the person who's been betrayed and their challenges. But we have our own form of empathy for the cheater and the person who's the sex addict. It looks different than this, mm-hmm. um, but you know, we're not here in judgment. We're here to help healing, and I'm glad you're working with everybody, Michelle. Um, will you come back and do this again? Absolutely, I would love to. You are really good at it. Folks, this is uh, Michelle Mays from Leesburg, Virginia, who runs a Partner Hope site and has an amazing treatment program of her own. Um, and I hope that you go find her at, uh, let me see, what is your email address? They just want to write you a note. Uh, Michelle Mays at relationalrecovery.com. 
And that would be out of the Center for Relational Recovery, which is where you are and what you run. Michelle Mays, thank you so much. And uh, we will definitely do this again. All right. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.